Let's cut straight to the chase. If I were to ask about the emotional wounds in this room, it, it would be almost unbelievable. I, a lot of things I don't know in life, but one of the things I do know at some level is what you guys carry on your shoulders. I preached for 33 years at the College Heights Christian Church. Um, College Heights is surrounded on two sides by Missouri Southern State University, and we typically had 300 to 400 college students in the church. Back in 1996, I started having college students live at our house. The last nine years, if you do your math, um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's that or not. I'll just, I'll just keep going. Um, I meet with about 1,000 college students individually every school year. I'm on staff at Ozark and just individual sessions. It's brutal. Some of you have escaped the worst part of it. And I'm not trying to talk you into to, to a crisis. I, I, I promise you I'm not. But trauma comes in two ways. Trauma comes from what happens to you. You know that. Um, I didn't get much sleep last night or the night before. My world has been brutal the last two days. Um, Wednesday night, um, it was an affair. And she threw him out of the house. And the sixth grader is weeping and screaming, Dad, come back. And she's saying, he can't come back. The fourth grader is screaming, and I'm, I'm up most of the night with an affair. Last night, I'm up most of the night because it's molestation, we found out, and we're calling, we called the police, and, and I spent the night with molestation stuff. My first appointment, I hope this is not, I'm going to leave this, one of my first appointments this morning is a young adult who tortured the family pet to death and killed it. This is a bright, bright, sunny way to start the weekend, isn't it? <laughs> My point would be this. You guys are growing up in a culture that has many, many good things it can give you. It's a culture that has enough of the glory and wonder of God that you can fall to your knees and worship. But you're also growing up in a culture that is very, very broken when it comes to emotional maturity and emotional health. It just is. The trauma can be that which happened to you, but the trauma can also be that which should have occurred in your life and didn't, the absence of what should have been there. And so it's no stretch. I'm gonna, in fact, you want to turn this off if you want to, because I think they can hear me. We're recording off the other one. Just turn it off. Can you guys hear me well enough? Yeah. Let's get this thing off. So every one of you, even in the best situations, have people that you love and people that have loved you, but there's just an absence of emotional maturity. You've grown up in a culture that is an activity-based culture, not a relationship-based culture, which means the commodities that we use and the currency we use is activities. The activities that you've done are incredible. I mean, the countries you've been to, the places you've done, the sports you've done, the kinds of things that are available to you, what you can do online, what you can do offline. We, we're an activity-based culture. And here's the problem. 
life is lived at the relational level. You form from the outside in. You could parallel park and pay taxes and, and, and be hired and, and run things. But the inside is not formed well. I, I, I don't know how else to, to, to jump into this other than say that was never God's plan for you. The gospel was never intended to only be something that sort of saved you on the outside. The gospel is intended to actually run through the deepest part of you, to run through every vein that you have, and to get to your emotions and repair them. My, my favorite passages are passages like 1 Thessalonians 5. It doesn't read quite as punchy in the English, I don't think, so let me give you a little bit the, the Greek word order on it, but it goes like this, himself, God himself, the God of peace. May he sanctify you through and through. May your whole body, soul, and spirit be found sound and blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. And the one who called you is faithful. He'll do it. Meaning what? What's God desire for you? And that is that not your, just your outside be transformed, but that you become literally internally this great shadow of the image of God. You're transformed internally. And it makes the statement, the one who called you is faithful and he will do it. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. Again, I'm just, I'm just pitching in where, where God intends to take us. Luke chapter 6, verse 40 is this wonderful little verse that goes like this. Jesus turns to the disciples and, and basically says this. The disciple, a, a student or a disciple is not above his master. But every disciple, when he's been fully, and the Greek word is katartizo, which doesn't mean anything to you, and you never need to know that word again. Except the Greek word katartizo means to be repaired. When Jesus first met the disciples, they are katartizoing their nets. That when a doctor sets a broken arm, he's katartizoing an arm. And Jesus turns to the disciples and said, my greatest plan for you, Gage, is not that you be saved. My greatest plan for you is that you be transformed and you become like Jesus in your wholeness. I want you caught our tidzoed. But you're growing up in a culture that teaches you how to do the outside stuff, but not the inside stuff. Oh, we learn how to cope. Don't misunderstand me. We navigate. We can all find our way home probably. But the vacuum and the hole that it leaves, and you guys are mature enough, no, no, it actually scares you a little. I mean, I'm coming on strong. I don't need to talk about why, but I'm going to talk about why for a moment. Here's some good news. We're going to get into some hows, okay? And the hows I hope to get into even tonight, but I got to get into the whys a little longer. This is not a relationship weekend. I'm not going to talk about dating and, and how you make relationships work, except that we are dealing with the basic building block. Let me explain to you why you weren't as loved as well in your own home as you should have been. Now, that's not everybody's story. I know that. There are many individuals that do have repair in their life. But if I were to ask about the vacuum in your home, I, 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 you and I both know there would be a massive number of hands that go up. 
Why? Why even is dating so stinking dr drama in this culture? He asked about the title of what my title is at Ozark. Well, the title over our office is Breakups Are Us. I mean, I, I, <laughs> that's what we do. That's what we do. Actually, colleges use departments. You recognize departments. We're called, we're LAMP, the Life and Ministry Preparation Center. And so students just come and, and meet. I, I, and, and have a blast with it, but, but let's get into this. I, I'm gonna jump in. Why, why don't families work as well as they should? I'm on, I'm on emotions now, I didn't change subjects. Why don't families work as well as they should? Well, here's really simple. Everybody's born with the instinctive desire to love and be loved, that's instinctive. You hit the world with that. Same way that a calf is born and knows to stand up on its four legs. The same way a whale knows how to migrate across an ocean without a single tree as a yard marker or something. I mean, how does that, how does that whale know how to migrate? How do hummingbirds, uh, God put an instinct. Every one of you, boy, bless your heart, those of you who sit up front, every one of you are born with that instinctive desire to love and be loved. You go, well, then that should be easy then. Uh, you know, you just kind of need to date around, find somebody and do what comes natural, except that doesn't work. Why? Because while you're born with the instinctive desire to love and be loved, the ability to love is not instinctive. The ability to love requires wholeness. I'm gonna use a bit of a visual metaphor. The desire to love comes out of your heart. I'm, I'm just using a visual. The ability to love, you have to be able to reach into your backbone and pull out the wholeness that love requires. Love makes claims on you that you have to be emotionally whole enough to do. It's the reason we don't let nine-year-olds get married. <laughs> because while they may want to love, they reach into their own wholeness and they come out too empty-handed. Love requires that you have your own feet underneath you so that you can take care of somebody. Love requires you be patient when you want to be patient. Love requires that you be courageous when you want to be courageous. Love requires that you forgive when your own instincts were crying out something different. Love makes claims on you. And again, I'm not trying to be sappy with this, and I know I can get into pretty sensitive stuff. I can tell you right now, your dad wanted to love you. For some of you, you need to hear this. Your dad didn't look at you when you were five or seven or eight or whatever it was and go, yeah, man, you're so unlovable, I wanna love you. I've done marriage counseling till the world looks level. Your dad wanted to love you, I can about guarantee you that. Your dad cried on his own pillow, your dad got in the F-150 pickup and he slammed the steering wheel with his own fist going, why do I keep messing this up? Your dad wanted to love you. The problem was, your dad grew up in an activity-based culture, not a relationship-based culture, and your dad missed some of the opportunities that were there, and when your dad reached into his backbone to pull out what was required to love you, he kept coming out empty-handed. And at first he beat himself up and blamed himself, but Americans, ultimately, we find a way to escape that kind of pain, and so he switches the blame. This is your fault. Your mom, if she just weren't this way, you just, if, you, if you just didn't talk so much, if you just talked more, if you were just this, if you were just that. And so you grew up thinking if, if things had been different in your, no, what you had, what you had was an inadequacy of growing up. And do you know why this matters to me? Because all of you are the beginnings of some little five-year-old little girl's life. 
And the same story shouldn't play out again. All of you will have a 13-year-old boy at some level in your life. Yours are that you've pulled into your life. And you've got to be whole enough to be able to reach into your backbone and pull out what love requires or the exact same thing happens. I joke about it when I sort of say breakups are us and cut me some slack. You guys don't know me and I need I, I got to hurry and I and I won't put all the disclaimers in that I would if we were sitting around having a cup of coffee together. But God designed a wonderful season in your life of successful singleness that you need to navigate. And I'm going to ask you, don't get in relationships until you've navigated that season of successful singleness. Because, come on, Frodo, God says, we've got a journey to take. And that journey is your repair. And your repair will occur both in your intimacy with God and in community, but it doesn't repair very well when we find the drug of choice and we begin to find boyfriend girlfriends to try to salvage. The whole explosion, even of the gay and lesbian and everything else that we're dealing with, the tran and everything else is a desperate sense of how can I be well inside? And the answers the world has doesn't seem to be accurate. Maybe it's a different answer. In the scripture, God just keeps saying, come back, come to me. Even our churches don't know how to do it well. You guys, I've loved the church. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not down on the church. I promise you, the, the church taught me to love Jesus. But the Western church that you've grown up in is not the epitome of what we ought to be as a church. I want to give you bad news, good news. Here's the bad news. You guys actually are the product in some of your emotional immaturity and emotional brokenness that the church wasn't as healthy as it needed to be. And here's the good news. You're the prophets who are going to bring it back. I'm looking at the prophets who are going to bring it back. Not back like it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Back, back, back like it should have been all along. Root yourself in scripture. But I need, I, I need to say to you as an old guy, we need you to get well for the sake of your home and for the sake of the church. And you got to get well on the inside. Your, your years of, of probably most of you in this room are single. And most of you in your college years, your number one reason of being a young adult is not probably even to learn a vocational skill. That's pretty handy and pretty important, okay? But your young adult years are actually this. You're going to pick up massive privilege and responsibility on your shoulders. You will be the prophets who step into the church. You will be the moms and dads who are raising and somebody's going to hand you a little 22-inch child. You are the ones who live in a broken world. And Christ calls you to wholeness. I just can't say it strong enough. You've got to chase after the very thing the scripture says we'll do but you're probably going to have to do it a little different way 
than we've been mentored to do it. I'm going to stay here one more second on something. I talked about dating. I want you to be patient. I need you to finish your journey. I'm, I'm not asking you to hate girls if you're a guy or, you know, girls to, to, to hate a guy. I, 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 but here's what I watch. The drug of choice in America is another person, and we don't get well. We, we just go find a drug of choice. And that's why the drama in high school like it was. That's why the drama in campus ministries often they are. Be patient. Be patient. Book of Proverbs tells you to run from a foolish man, run from a foolish woman. Do you actually understand what that word means? Sure, the word foolish can, can mean wicked, but that's not normally. The foolish person is the well-intended and likable person. In fact, if you've got your Bible, or I'll turn to it and hear me. Proverbs 25 Proverbs 25:28 Proverbs 25:28 has the statement like that a man without discipline that word discipline is not referring to the self-discipline to go to the gym at six o'clock every morning. It's a parallel word to the word wisdom. That a man without discipline, a man without wisdom, a man without wholeness, a man without repair is like a city without walls. What's that mean? You find a city without walls, everybody is vulnerable in that place. You tuck your kids in and they'll get carried off in the middle of the night by raiders. You have the old man and woman set on the porch. Thieves will come. One of them will get killed because the city has no walls of protection. The most dangerous man or woman on the face of the earth is not the scoundrel. The most dangerous man or woman on the face of the earth is the well-intended, likable individual who never came to enough wholeness to protect those they love. Don't be that person. And so I'm calling you I'm calling you to wholeness. I need you to chase after it. That's probably enough of the why we need to. Josh, aren't you sitting on the corner over there? Joshua, would you bring me that easel if you wouldn't mind? There's some pins that may fall down or whatever. Good luck with that. <laughs> Can you bring that over to me? You probably have to grab the back of it and the middle of it and all that sort of stuff as well. We're going to find out how emotionally secure you are as we laugh at you here in a minute. <laughs> Thank you. Tonight's the introduction. Tomorrow we get to the meat. But I've got to get to one thing that's happening. How can you be a Christian individual who knows who you are in Christ? And yet many of you in this room... It's hard for you to understand why am I as insecure as I am. Many of in this room, you know who you are in Christ and the Holy Spirit's taken up residence. You realize, don't you, in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of holy places. Holy of Holies, Mount Sinai, Bethel, where, where Jacob 
has the ladder and he says, behold, God is in this place. Burning bush. There's all kinds of holy places in the Old Testament. You realize in the New Testament there are no holy places. Only holy people. And God said, I'll take residence in you. You are the holy of holies. You are Mount Carmel. You are Mount Sinai. That's who you are. So how can I be that? But I have this contradiction. Why do I get jealous so easily? Why am I, why, why does it rip me up when my friend got the honor I wanted? Why does it tear me up? And I can't seem to get over the hurt. Why did I wake up mad? I don't know why I'm mad. I, I just find myself mad all the time. Well, what, what, what's happening? What's taking place? Give me a, give me a little, little, little time here to draw something. If I were to take one of you in this room, for my illustration, I'm probably going to use a boy, but just you can do what you want to with this. If I were to take multiple days and just say, hey, could we hang out? I'd love to hear your story. And nobody tells their story, or story linear. None of us do. We loop and back and forth and your story and, and I, I, I'm the same way. So it would take me hours to actually hear it. And I wouldn't do it the way, this, this is an upfront illustration, not how I would actually deal with you in a, in a coffee shop. But, but when you've told me over multiple hours, multiple days your story, I would say to you, at least for this one, can I, can I, can I ask if I've got your story right? Can I tell your story back to you the way I hear it? You go great. So I start to sort of storyboard it. Now, again, I wouldn't, but, but I storyboard it for you. Okay, so you were two when your dad left and, and, and it was just you and your mom. And you were four when the stepdad came into your life and he wanted your mom, but you were kind of thrown in the deal. You were, you were in first grade when you were at that sleepover and you wet the bed and some of the, they found out and you kind of got that nickname and, and that sort of happened. And you were here at second grade and third grade and, and that happened to you. And then you had that friend who said that thing to you. And, and, and here's where the boys were experimenting sexually when you were, you were at that fourth grade thing and, 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 and so here's seventh grade and eighth grade and sophomore and, and, and okay, here's where you thought you had a girlfriend and, and then you find out she was lying to you and, and didn't like you and told you nobody would ever like you ever again. And I, I mean, everybody's got some story, okay? Don't point, okay? <laughs> so I go through this whole thing and, you, and now you're a junior here in college and and you thought you'd really like that degree, and now you're going, what kind of an idiot would actually get this degree? And... Okay. Again, don't point. So I take your plot points. Cut me some slack. I take your plot points and I call in my good friend Stephen King. Stephen and I are 
just like that, something like that. <laughs> so I invite Stephen King in and I say, Stephen, uh, I'd like to ask you, would you, by the way, the novelist is who I'm talking about. Stephen, Stephen, would you, would you mind writing a, a, a novel for me or would you write a, a screenplay? And Stephen, I need you to use these plot points. And Stephen goes, sure, Randy, I'd be happy to. And so he's gone about eight months, seven months. He comes back and he brings me um, a book. And I open it up and it is dark. It's scary. I slept with the lights on for three more days. <laughs> and he used all these plot points and it is a dark, dark book. Crafted incredible. But oh, it's heavy. I say, thank you, Stephen. I sure appreciate it. Here's $37 and he leaves, okay? <laughs> so I pick up the phone and I call my good friend, Steven Spielberg. And, and got right through. He recognized my number. And, and so I got right through to Stephen. <laughs> And I invite Spielberg in, and I say, Stephen, if you don't mind, would you write me a screenplay? If, 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 could you write me a, a movie script? Could you write me a book? And Stephen, I need you to use these plot points. Sure, Randy, and he's gone seven, eight, nine, ten months. He comes back in, and he brings it, and I sit there and read it, and it is the most high-fiving, fist-bumping, chest-bumping. I mean, you can hear the, the triumphant music in the background. It's incredible on, 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 on how celebratory it is. It, this is. This is great. And I say thank you, and he leaves. But I got a problem now. I don't understand. How can Stephen King take the exact same up and he has a dark story and Steven Spielberg takes the exact plot points and he has a triumphant one? If you don't hear anything else from me tonight, hear this. What has happened to you, either by action or by void, what has happened to you does not dictate your life. It actually doesn't control you. It's the narrative that you've created to make sense out of it. That's actually what controls you. And in most cases, here's what happened. You started a story as a little four-year-old kid just trying to make sense out of life. I don't know why I'm not smarter. I don't know why I'm not taller. I don't know why I'm not this. I don't know why I'm so tall and gangly. I don't know why. I, and, and, and you start in as a four-year-old kid trying to make sense out of what happened. And then you added to it as a five-year-old kid. And then you added to it as a seven-year-old kid. And you added to it as an eighth. And you just kept adding to it. And you actually are a junior in college and you're still adding to a story that a four-year-old kid starts. And you think it's your actual story when in fact, no, it's actually not. And by the way, you might want to cut that four-year-old kid some slack. Children 
are magnets for pain. They're just not very good interpreters of it. And some of you sitting in this chair are bright, shining stars of what God has designed and who you are and what you are, but you're living out a deeper story that is not true. And real emotional maturity <coughs> is never going back and changing the facts of what happened. Emotional maturity is coming to question the story I've always believed about myself because now what I actually have is a Christ who walks into my story and says, oh, sweetheart, you were doing the best you could in understanding and creating a narrative. You did the best you could as a second grader and a fourth grader. But can I strip away the story you think, and can I actually tell you your story? And Christ begins to tell me the true story. The reason the contradiction is occurring in your life, why you really do love Jesus, but I can't be easy to live with, is not because you don't love Jesus, but the power of the deeper story is still what's driving you. Do you want to know what drove your mom to continue her drinking problem? It's the power of the deeper story. Do you want to know what causes your dad to blow up with his anger? It's not because your dad somehow got the gift of worst anger. Your dad has a deeper story that drives it. And until the deeper story changes, we're trying to live out the external story. I, I know metaphors don't always work, but I know Jesus loves me. I believe it right here. But right here, I have a deeper story that especially when I get stressed or hurt or angry, I live out. And so the process of Christ's transformation. Well, Randy, you're making that up. No, I'm not. Have you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? There are about 96 or 98 places that occur in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are about 213 to 215 events that are recorded in Matthew, Mark. John says, by the way, if I recorded them all, the whole world could hardly contain everything you have to say. So why did God give us 213 to 215 events that he just puts there? Because Jesus is going to sit with a woman at the well and say, Sweetheart, you don't know your story. Can I change your story to the true one? He's going to take Zacchaeus and say, Zacchaeus, can I come to your house? Because you actually don't even know your own story. Can I change your story? I don't know why it's my favorite. It didn't even fit in here for what I'm doing tonight, but you didn't want to go to bed anyhow. <laughs> Apparently, some of you have heard me before because you all brought your pillows, so I, 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 I kind of recognize that. <laughs> My fame has gotten around. <laughs> My favorite story, I have to extrapolate a little bit, but not much. Honestly, it's one time when I was, a, say, a kid, I'm about 70 now, so if you don't care, the word kid has got quite a range to it. <laughs> and by the way, I am a punk kid. My father-in-law is at Waukita, Oklahoma. My wife's out with him. He turned 101 this, um, this week. And he's on tractors, and he killed a deer. <laughs> so I hope to grow up one of these days and be like him. But anyhow... <laughs> 
There's a story, it's in Mark chapter 1, it's in Luke chapter 5. The guy comes home, and again, I've got to extrapolate, I, I know that, but stay with me. The guy comes home, he's been doing construction work, and he takes a shower, and he's been ignoring it for the last week. Men have the ability to compartmentalize, and he's been ignoring it but he can't today and he feels behind his ear or between his fingers or maybe where his nose meets his lip. And when he actually examines it in his shower, he just begins to bawl. And he throws his hands over his head and he slides down the shower wall and he sits on the base of the shower just weeping. When he gets done weeping, he kind of crawls out of the shower, has the towel around him, he steps into the bedroom, and he, he tries to holler for his wife, but his voice won't hardly work. He finally gets it out. His wife comes in, and, and she sees him just on the face. He can't even get it out, and he asks her to come look. And she looks and it's like you hit her in the gut. She falls to the floor and she begins to wail and she gets in a fetal position. He gets up without a word, he gets dressed, he goes down to find the local priest. He walks in, the local priest sees him walk in and the local priest wants to know, did, did Martha die, did the kids die? Because he's the color of whiter than you can imagine. And the priest comes and looks, and the priest begins to have tears run down his cheeks. And the priest says, oh, Fred, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. It, it is leprosy. The guy leaves the priest, and he goes home. And again, I, I, I know I, I'm, I'm fleshing the story out. But he goes home and he doesn't even go in his own house. He's not allowed to go in his own house because history records neighbors have burned down houses if a leper knowingly went in. His wife can't touch him. His wife stands on the porch with the two little kids around her legs and he stands out in the little ways in the yard and they're weeping and bawling and they stand there and there's nothing they can do. It's, it's, it's worse than a train wreck. It's worse than a plane crash because they're still alive living it. And she goes in and gets a cardboard box and she puts a little sausage in it and a little cheese and his underwear and, and a change of clothes and he backs off so she can walk out and set the box down. And then she backs off so he can, and gets on the porch so he can pick it up and he turns and he walks out to the city dump where two other lepers live, and for the rest of his life, nobody will touch him but another leper. When he has pneumonia, only a leper touches him. And for the first year or two, she brought food regularly. But you can't get by. She can't survive. And the law allows you to divorce a leper. It's a simple little story. 
Nobody touches him the rest of his life but another leper. And Mark chapter 1 has a simple little truth that a man cries out, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the text says Jesus is indignant. He's angry. At the leper? No. No. Christ had to be weeping, angry at, at how stories play out. And the text says, and placing his hands on the man. Jesus said, I am willing, be clean. And the picture of Jesus is hugging lepers. And that man's story has changed. I don't know what you think your story is. I, I, you know this better than anybody else does. But the narrative you've created, I promise you, comes out of the brokenness. Here's what Christ actually does. You've been taught your whole life that Christ will, will forgive your sins. That Christ will take your sins away. It's true. Here's what you didn't realize. Christ will take the old story away because it never was right. He'll peel the thousands of post-it notes you've stuck all over yourself and everybody's stuck there. And Christ begins to tell a new story. And when you believe the new story, I'm going to give you an opinion. I couldn't quantify this, but it's my opinion as, as, as a guy. I think it takes three years for you to fully absorb into the deepest parts of you the real story. I think that's, a, it was a lifetime, but I think it's a three, it, just watching it. I believe you know it, but you get confused. I think you know it, and then you fail. I think you know it, and then somebody says something. I think you know it, but you know it out here. It takes a while to get the deeper story, but if you have any courage, I will guarantee you, Christ won't just take your sins away. He'll take that false, lying, wrong narrative you've always believed. And he begins to write a grander story with you if you let him. Your emotions are almost always operating out of your deepest story. If you're angry, let's go look at your deeper story. You're insecure, let's go look at your deeper story. You're embittered easily, let's go look at your deeper story. And that's the part Christ is changing. You've had a full day. I've got another 20 minutes I could put with this on another little layer to put in. Let my people go is also biblical, so. <laughs> Here's where I want to, if I lay some things out, here's, here's what I'm laying out. The one who called you is faithful, and you have to decide whether Christ actually will repair you. Like a net being repaired. You're going to have to be repaired, or you're going to be frustrated your whole life. You won't be able to love your family the way you want. You'll duplicate what you've seen. And that repair starts 
on your deeper story. I do think it's a bit of a journey that we will pick up in the morning on what part of that journey is.